This morning we begin with this question. What came to life 600 years, not ago, but 600 years before Christ, lived in the minds of all noble Romans. Want to be a noble Roman? Infused Western culture for 2,000 years, but died out in the mid-20th century. I wonder what you're thinking. It's Latin. It's Latin. We don't do church in Latin anymore, do we? We don't do church in Latin anymore. Latin's actually uh, a very helpful language. Uh, There are so many words that we use today, particularly if you're in the study of law. There are many legal words that are used from Latin. Uh, But there's other words. How about this this word? Here's a a Latin word for you. Audio. Audio, like, you know, radio in your car, right? Audio. Uh, Alma mater. Alma mater. Uh, Ryland's going to be, where's Ryland? I don't know. Oh, he's back. He's, I think he's helping with the food. He's going to be graduating. So Kalama High School is going to be his alma mater. It means nourishing mother. Uh, antebellum. Well, I talk about antebellum slavery. It means before the war, right? Before the war. Um, and the list could go on and on. And, and I know you're just right now, you're thinking, wow, the pastor's going to give me a Latin lesson. But I'm not going to give you a Latin lesson. I'm not going to do it. It wasn't in my education, even though I, there are, Believe me, there's a big part of me that wishes I had Latin earlier. And I know my, my, uh, my family thinks I'm nuts, but you might think I'm nuts too. But, but let's take a look at what, uh, <clears throat> what was originally written by a Brett and Kate McKay. Uh, they write this. While Latin had been dying a slow death for hundreds of years, it still had a strong presence in schools until the middle of the 20th century. Beginning in the 1960s, college students demanded that the curriculum be more open, inclusive, and less Eurocentric. Among their suggested changes were eliminating Latin as a required course for all students. Anyone here know Latin? I bet. Oh, boy, see? See how things have changed? To quell students' protests, universities began to slowly phase out the Latin requirement. And because colleges stopped requiring Latin, Many high schools in America stopped offering Latin classes, too. I mean, basically, just the language just disappeared, right? And I won't continue to read this, but the point is, is that the, the Catholic Church also started to provide services in the, in the vernacular languages. And so Latin just kind of disappeared. It, it just disappeared. Okay. Now, I hope I haven't, like, discouraged you from listening to this sermon by talking about Latin but this morning I'm going to use a Latin word that you're probably not familiar, familiar with, but hopefully it will ring a bell. And that word is probatio. Uh, a probatio is a rhetorical argument used to support a writer's case. Um, let me ask you this, okay? Um, what is a probation? Maybe you've had a probation officer, right? What's a probation? Well, we put people on probation when they start a job sometimes. Say, hey, we're going to put you on probation for the next 90 days to see how you perform. And then if you do well, we'll just we'll, you know, take you off probation. Or, of course, people get on probation because they've been serving time uh, in the criminal justice system. And so probation is from probatio. Okay. Um, now, you're asking the question in your mind right now, I suspect. How does this Latin stuff apply to the book of Romans? It's a great question. It's an appropriate question. Okay. Well, let me, uh, uh, which leads to another uh, question. What is the Apostle Paul's 
Okay, first point or major point in the gospel. Paul's first and most important point in the gospel, okay, or I shouldn't say the gospel, in the book of Romans, is that the gospel is the power of God for for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Uh, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. This is his big point, his big and first point. Okay? And, it's, and, and what he's going to do, and I've talked about this in previous previous message, is that he's going to take this statement in verses 16 and 17, essentially the idea that the righteous shall live by faith, or that the gospel is uh, the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. He's going to take that and he's going to support that statement. He's going to essentially try to prove that statement or provide evidence for that statement. And he's also going to expand on that statement. And when we get all the way to chapter 8, particularly in verse 18 to to the end of the chapter, 18 through 39, he's come to the climax of this. And all that material from 116 and 17 all the way through chapter 8 is his probatio. It's his argument. See, a good Latin education would help us all because you could understand the pastor. You know, my wife, sometimes she asks me, she says, who are you preaching to? Are you, are you preaching to, like, you know, seminary students? You know, are, are you preaching to a congregation? And it's like, I don't know. I just like to teach, you know? And here you go. This is a probatio. It's all the way through from, from chapter 1 to chapter 8. He's trying to prove this point right here. Uh, maybe you remember this slide. Do you remember this slide I, I used a long time ago? I gave you actually a sheet of paper with that, the, with that, that uh, chart on it that I made. Uh, that's a very important chart for understanding the first eight chapters of Romans. It's very important. First of all, we have this statement of 1, 16, and 17 about the relationship between the gospel and salvation. That the salvation is available for everyone who believes. And then he expands on that. And he shows us in chapter 3, 21 through 31, that, that this gospel that's really about righteousness, right? Becoming, getting, becoming righteous. Righteousness which is a characteristic of God and a gift of God to the church. That being righteous is, was demonstrated not just by Paul saying it in chapters 1, verses 16 and 17, but by demonstrating it through the person of Jesus Christ. Righteousness was demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And that's what 321 through 31 is about. The righteousness of God is revealed in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I talked about that uh, a long time ago. We could, we could spend a lot of time on, on that, particularly with the word faithfulness. But the point is, is that righteousness is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now we get to chapter 8. And what do we get? The righteousness of God is revealed in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8, in some measure, is about. Righteousness being revealed through the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, when we get to Romans 8, 18, verse 18 of chapter 8, um, Paul will use the rest of the chapter to reveal greater depths of salvation. Now remember, verses 16 and 17, the gospel is about, this, is about salvation, right? All those who believe. Now when we get to 18 through 39 of chapter 8, He's going to show us more about salvation. This is, so salvation isn't, isn't as limited as you think it is. 
So it should, that's what ch- verses 18 to 39 is about, which is what we're into uh, today. Salvation is much bigger than people expect. I wrote these down. I'll just move through it. Um, greater dimensions of salvation. Greater than anyone expected. Now, let's be honest. To the casual Christian on the street, usually we say in the pew, right? You know, because Christians love to come to church and worship when they're not looking at the internet and doing internet church. Right? With the casual Christian out there, most Christians see salvation primarily this way, that we're getting saved from hell. You know, I mean, are you saved? Well, yeah, I'm saved. Well, what does that mean to you? Well, it means I'm not going to suffer eternal damnation. Well, that's right. That's right. That, that for those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior, He saves. He saves from damnation, from hell. Right? And that's right. But salvation is bigger than that. It's much more than that. I tell you, if it's not more than that, wow, then, ooh, this is really a tough life. It's bigger than that. And he wants to show us, show us that. Okay, so let's move right into... Uh, last week's verse. Because verse 17 of chapter 8 and verses 18, they, well, it just sets it up, right? Verse 18 or verse 17 of chapter 8, Paul says, and if children, then heirs. He's talking about the fact that we're heirs. If we're Christians, if we, are, if we have God as our Father, we're Christians, you see, then we are heirs. We inherit something. Heirs. Heirs of God talked about that last week, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then he gives us this provision. We ended the sermon last week talking about this provision. Provided this blessing is ours, this gift is ours, this inheritance is ours. Provided. Much of the evangelical church out there doesn't talk about this. But here it is. Provided we suffer with him. See why I started talking about troubles and suffering and all these kinds of things in the beginning of the service? Provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, glorification. Um, what is glorification? Well, I'll, I'll just say this. I'm skipping a little bit of this message because of time, but I'll say this. Paul's probably thinking about Jesus' post-resurrection experiences. Uh, we had a Sunday school class this morning. We talked a little bit about this in the Sunday school class. Let's take a look at, at uh, um, this from Luke's gospel. Luke appears to the disciples. I'm sorry, I'm going to start right here in verse 36 then. He says... Uh, it says this, as they were talking about these things, this is after the resurrection, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Wow, what an amazing experience. He was supposed to be dead. Now he's alive. And now he's entering into the room. Are you kidding me? He just shows up here and he says, peace to you. This is the new reality. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they had saw, saw spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you 
why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Touch me and see, for spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still, they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, he said, have you anything here to eat? I mean, last, last night, my, uh, my, my family and I, we had chicken wings. Right? They're good, aren't they? You like chicken wings, Justin? Oh, yeah, chicken wings. Oh, yeah, they're good stuff. Yeah, oh, he is all over those chicken wings. You know what? I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping on chicken wings in heaven. I mean, I, I know that the, you know, the chickens and stuff, is, I mean, there's not, I don't see any death going on in heaven, but I got to have chicken wings. Anyway, so, but there's Jesus. Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. This is what Paul's thinking about in Romans 8. That there's a glorification, and how do we know? We don't we really know anything about it, but we have an example of it in the person of Jesus. That here he is, raised from the dead in a body. Now, that's really important that we understand that Jesus died on the cross bodily, wasn't a spirit. And he rose bodily. And here we see him glorified. Now, this is pre-ascension, but nevertheless, this is the kind of experience that we're talking about here, okay? So we've got to hold on to this stuff because this is part of who we are. This is part of our future. Okay, so I want to move on here, okay? There's verse 17, which talks about suffering and glorification, prepares us for, for verse 18. Paul writes this, knowing that the people he's writing to have suffered greatly. For I consider that the... That, that the sufferings, notice the plural, because we always suffer more than once, right? The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I put the Greek up there because I thought I might have more time. I'm not going not to get into that per se. But the point is that, is that this whole suffering thing is, is an active thing. It's what we're doing all the time. Okay, that's an that's, that's, that's the idea here in 17 and 18. Um, but it's not even worth, Paul's like saying, look, it's not even worth talking about. You know? Get your focus on what is coming. Get your focus on the glorification that's coming to us. They're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see? Um, all right, I want to just jump right ahead here. Um, I was going to talk about suffering as persecution. The suffering is understood two ways. One is a, as persecution because the church is going through persecution. Suffering is also talk about a reference to the human body. I want to make a mention of this. This is very important. Paul says in verse 23 of chapter 8, he makes a mention, reference to the human body. Because we don't just suffer when people uh, do bad things to us. We suffer when this, that person inside is trying to get us to do the wrong thing. Temptations come we want, it, we want to overeat on chicken wings, right? 
We want to, but seriously, we there are things that come into our minds and we that play with our heart, and there are things that we know we shouldn't do, and we won't. There's a part of us that wants to do them, and you know, uh, I you know I struggle with that area. I know it's sinful and I shouldn't do it, but oh, the body is struggling against me, and that human flesh really wants to do those things, and I'm just. And then Paul says, "Look, we got to put those things to death." And it's hard to do. It's very hard to do. But the Holy Spirit can give us power to do it. That's why he says in verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You know, when we, are, when, when, when we um, go to be with the Lord, we won't have these temptations. But putting death, the, the death, the deeds of the body, is part of our suffering. You see, and we have to do it. We have to go through suffering. That's why Paul uses it in verse 17 in chapter 8. He uses it in the active tense in the Greek, that we are actively suffering, that we continue to suffer in this life. But uh, we need to get our minds in the right place, you see. So now, verse 18, let's go, let's go, let's go through this again just, just, just quickly. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time or not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And notice that the, the word in the Greek is, it's, the preposition is ace, amos is us, but ace. Okay, Paul could have used a different preposition. He could have used the preposition in. But he uses, which means like inside of us, so to speak. It's more static, it's more static. He uses ace because it's a little bit more dynamic. So there, so there are sufferings that happen to us, and there's, there's sufferings that happens in us, but also glorification, you see. He's talking about, us, about the glorification that's coming to us because what is, we're going to experience glory in those things around us. Something's going to happen around us. Something big is going to happen. And something big is going to happen in us. You see, glorification to us and in us. All right. So Paul goes on. This is, this is where salvation begins to expand. This is where he really gets into the... Pro, really using the, his, the probatio, the argument, to prove his first statement in chapter 1. He says this, For the creation waits with eager longing. This is, the, this is why we can't be worried about our suffering so much. We need to focus our minds on our glorification. Because it's coming. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Do you know that creation is being personalized here? What is creation here? Let me tell you what, it, what creation is not. Okay? What, what does Paul mean by creation? Okay, so creation in verse 19 of chapter 8, it does not mean, it does not mean angels. You know why? Because angels don't decay. They're not subject to corruption. Angels aren't, aren't just, doesn't mean that. Okay, not in the same, not, not to the degree that he's talking about uh, creation. Doesn't mean that. There's a sense in which I'm sure angels are excited for what's coming, but it's not really what his focus is. Uh, creation also doesn't mean believers. Because, you know, um, in verse 23, Paul's going to say not only the creation, but we ourselves. And then, cr by creation, he doesn't even mean fallen humanity. What does Paul mean by creation waits eagerly, have eager longing? Here it is. It's nature. Paul's going to, he's trying to tell us that everything around us is going to change. This is his focus here in chapter 8, in this section here. Everything's going to change. 
You see? Um, and, but, but why does nature wait so eagerly? For the creation was subject to futility. You know, I like to garden. And every year, when it comes to the fall, I mean, spring's great because you're seeing things grow and everything. I mean, it's a lot of fun. I like to watch things grow, right? But when things in the fall start to die, it's like reminds me, wait a minute, nature is subject to what? Decay, right? Um, I love dogs. I used to use dog illustrations too much. Some people gri griped at me because I used them so much, all right? <laughs> Kenny's going, yes, you used them too much, okay? Dogs don't live that long, right? I don't tell my dogs that because I don't want to depress them, okay? But they, you know, they don't live very long. It's so sad. And Paul, so Paul, Paul's using this idea, he's personifying nature here, saying there's a sense in which all of nature is groaning, because nature decays. For the creation was subjected to futility. That means there's really no lasting purpose. It doesn't seem like there's any lasting purpose. There's death. Not willingly. They didn't want to go through that. Nature didn't want to go through this. But because of him who subjects it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. I like what the Revised Standard used to use, the word they used to, uh, that they used, uh, decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's incredible stuff. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What is Paul talking about? He's saying that salvation is bigger than you and me. When Jesus returns, when he comes back, all reality is going to change including reality for my dogs, including reality for the trees, for the birds, for the bees. Things will not be the same. They will not be the same. Now, I don't know specifics of how they won't be the same, but I know they're not going to be same, the same. So what is Paul really saying? He's saying that salvation is cosmic. Nature will receive the glory of the children of God. It will be different. Now, in the Sunday school class I was in this morning, uh, one of my most beloved people in the whole world was talking about it going back to Eden. I think Paul's actually saying, yeah, I like Eden, but even more. Even more. Because there's going to be a glorification that we receive that extends us, that takes us beyond what humanity was in the garden. There's a sense in which we're going to be even, have even more. John Wesley had a sermon one time. He wrote a sermon. I'm not going to get into this too much, but he wrote a sermon. He said, oh, the blessedness of our sin. It's <laughs> the idea. That if it hadn't been for sin, we wouldn't have fully known the love of God. Because it's only through our sin that Jesus comes and we really, he, the righteousness of God, the love of God is demonstrated on the cross because God is cruciform love. But how would we know that if he didn't do it for us? So God always takes things that are really bad 
and brings out all this good out of it. Anyway, salvation is cosmic. It's big. All reality is going to change. This is what Paul is saying. Can you imagine how excited he must have been when he wrote these things down? It's like, keep your eyes on the big stuff. Don't focus on your suffering, which is temporary. Suffering always produces either greater faith or it destroys a person's heart and they walk away from Jesus. Keep your eyes on the big stuff. Big stuff. Salvation is cosmic. Now, I am going to talk about Wesley for a minute. We have a little bit of time. I'm going to talk about Wesley a little bit because this is another sermon that he wrote and I just think this is a fun sermon. I'll never forget reading this sermon when I was in seminary. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. This guy's out of his mind. But, but it's a fun sermon. And so I wanted to quote some, uh, some, some of this sermon. It's from the uh, sermon entitled The Great Deliverance. If you don't know who John Wesley is, he uh, lived from 1703 to 1791, covered the entire 18th century, and he's the founder of Methodism. It's actually the Nazarene Church comes out of that. If you don't know anything about that, uh, it's okay. It's fine. But this is what he writes. He says, but in what respect was the creature every creature, then made subject to vanity. See, he's actually preaching on the very text that I'm preaching on today. What did the meaner creatures suffer when man rebelled against God? It is probable that they sustained much loss. In other words, when Adam and Eve sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, creation fell. Nature fell. That's why you had thorns and thistles, right? In that text in Genesis. Remember that? The land's cursed. He's saying, look, it is probable that they sustain much loss, even in the lower faculties, their vigor, strength, and swiftness. In other words, he's saying, saying animals were probably that much stronger and that much quicker. And that they're just, they had more. They f- actually fell, is what, he's, what he says. Now, this is speculation, but this is what he says, and I think it's fun to, fun to think about. Okay? But undoubtedly, they suffered far more in their understanding, in their minds. More than we can easily conceive. Perhaps insects and worms, this is where he's getting really, I just think he's kind of funny here, but I'm giving it to you because I'm a fun guy. Okay? Perhaps insects and worms had been as much as understanding as the most intelligent brutes have now. We do have this serpent who talks to Adam Adam and Eve, right? Anyway, that's a story. Uh, whereas millions of creatures have at present little more understanding than the earth on which they crawl or the rock in which they adhere. He goes on. They suffered still more in their will. Wesley's big on the will. They suffered still more in their will, in their passions, which, which were then variously distorted and frequently set in flat opposition to the little understanding that was left, left them. In other words, Beforehand, they were smarter and they were willing to do whatever they were supposed to do. Now they're dumber and they're not willing to do what they're supposed to do. In this sense, he goes on and he says, their liberty likewise was greatly impaired. Yea, yea, in many cases, totally destroyed. They are still utterly enslaved to irrational appetites which have the full dominion over them. The very foundations of their nature are out of course, are turned upside down. One more slide on this one. As man, and I think this is important. This is, a, this is kind of an insightful thing that he has here. As man is deprived of his perfection, thinking of the garden, right, in the sin, as man is deprived of his perfection, his loving obedience to God 
So brutes are deprived of their perfection, their loving obedience to humanity. Remember what God says to uh, Adam and Eve? That they were to have dominion? And so what do you think the animals were, were going to do? According to Wesley, I know this is speculative, but according to Wesley, they're going to listen to human, human beings and do what they're supposed to do. Because we are the very image of God on the earth. That's how God designed it originally. That's what he's saying. The far greater part of them flee from him. This is just what animals do. Every time I go out into the garden and I see a rabbit out there, the rabbit's gone. The birds fly away from me. They are afraid of me, right? Studiously avoid his hated presence. The most uh, of the rest set him at open defiance. Yea, destroy him if it be in their power. Only a, a few only, those that we commonly term domestic animals, re- retain more or less of their original disposition to the mercy of God, love him still, and pay obedience to him. Aren't my dogs wonderful? You know. Okay, now I know I went on with that, but, I, but it's fascinating. You know where we are here? We're back in Isaiah 11. By the way, get to know Isaiah 11, 1 through 11, please. Get to know this stuff. This is our hope. Isaiah 11, that's our future. You see? It's just using different language. Paul in 8, uh, tw- uh, eight verses uh, 18 through 39 is talking about that, particularly today with, through verse 25, 18 through 25. But this is in Isaiah 11. Look at this, Isaiah 11. The, all reality changed. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall leave them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters covered the sea. This is the great hope that we have. I guess no chicken wings, okay? Because that means chickens would die. I don't know how that all works. I am not a vegetarian. Okay, I'm just not. We're having hamburgers today? Okay, all right, I like that. Okay, but the point is, is that everything's going to be different. And this is super important. This is very, very important as we communicate the gospel to people that salvation is not just about personal salvation. It's not just about you. It's not just about me. It's not. The biblical view of salvation is dynamic. It is bigger than that. We really mess up in 20th century, or 21st century America when we just talk about salvation in terms of a person getting out of hell. The biblical view of salvation is that everything is going to change. Actually, and I'll just go ahead and tell you this. It's not a sermon. I'm going to give you a freebie here. Right? Uh... Paul says this, he says, we were saved, we are saved, we are being saved. Check it out, 1 Corinthians 1.18. We are being saved, and he says that we will be saved. The biblical view of salvation is very big, and we see today that it is cosmic. It's about all 
the cosmos. Okay. Um, let me let me just uh, go through a couple more verses here with you. Verse twenty-three, Paul writes, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're already adopted, but there's a redemption of our bodies that's coming. This is what, as many of you know, I say it all the time around here, this is the already but the not yet. We already, who trust in Jesus Christ, we already have the Holy Spirit. We already have the power of God in our lives. We already experience the kingdom of God. We already have this, but not yet. Not yet. Because more is coming. And as Paul says elsewhere, and I put it up there on the screen, 2 2 Corinthians 5.5, it's an era bone. An era bone bona. It's an era bone. It's a down payment. That's what that means. It's a down payment. The Holy Spirit is a down payment for what's coming. So when Calvin, Calvin, you know, he, we baptized him today, and there's this promise of the Holy Spirit in his life. This is a down payment for Calvin that as he continues to walk with Jesus Christ, he will, he, he, he's, a, he's guaranteed to be with Christ in eternity. Absolutely guaranteed, but he has to continue to walk with Christ, right? There's no doubt about his personal assurance. But he has to continue to walk with Christ. Don't you dare walk away from Jesus after he died for you and, ra- and, and rose for you and ascended for you and is at work in your life. Don't you dare walk away from him. You just follow Jesus. And as you follow Jesus, he will never leave you and never forsake you. He will always be with you. Oh, but woe to those who hear the gospel and don't repent and are not baptized. Woe to those who come to the very edge of salvation and say, well, I think I'll just think about it for a little bit. You don't know if today you're going to live. You might die tonight. Woe to those who resist the call to be saved. Because today is the saved salvation. So you can enter into this. Oh, we have the glory before us. The glory of God before us. It's going to be good, isn't it, Justin? Oh, yeah, buddy. It's going to be good. And these are great promises for us. Okay. All right. For this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for this or wait for it with patience. Um, now what are we going to do with all this? What are we going to do with this, this stuff? Well, why this message? Well, a couple things I want to mention to you here. Um, Number one, it gives us understanding, right? On the doctrine of salvation, what salvation is really about. That's one of the reasons why we talked about this. Salvation is far more than personal. It also tells us something about how God works in the world. God loves every, everyone and God loves his creation. Think twice before you step on that ant, right? 
I'm serious, actually. There are places, there are times when you need to take care of ants. I used to have, now I'm just talking to you. I used to have ants crawling all up my house in St. Louis. They drove me insane. I tried to kill them. Okay? But be, think twice about what you do with God's creation. God loves his creation. All right? I still think he can't possibly like insects. I mean, I mean mosquitoes. Right? But I don't, I don't get that. You know, the, I'm just talking now. This is very inappropriate, Larry. I'm just, I'm just talking. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, do you know that there's, there's no real known use for a mosquito? I, they just make you itch, suck your blood. I don't know good, anyway, I, I'm just talking, okay? Um, I don't know why I'm doing that. Uh, maybe it's just the hamburgers that are coming up and so forth. I don't know. But God loves his creation. But here's the main, here's, here's the other thing is that we have an incredible f- future, friends. Unbelievable future. And we're going to enjoy everything that God makes and everything that he redeems. We're going to live in, I, I don't even, why would anyone walk away from this? Why would you miss out on the glory? Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you've given us so much. Um, Not only have you given us so much, but you're giving us so much and you're about to give us even more. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful. For those who don't know Christ, who haven't submitted their will to him, we ask, Lord, that they would repent to be baptized. We also ask, Lord, that you would help all of us to be faithful to the end because we, we, we want what you want. We want to be your people. So I pray that the rest of the uh, time here today as we have fellowship, as we uh, eat uh, together, Lord, I just pray that you would be in the midst of that and that there would be great joy in this place. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.